so this morning, I want to preach from my life verses, actually. And um, it's in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. You'll recognize them. They're very familiar. And over the next couple of weeks, this week and next week, we're going to unpack this passage. But before we do that, I just want to open with a little bit of, uh, of a, an opening story that might give some context. Several years ago, I gave a message in which I described a store um, which I read about in the Dallas, Texas area. A store which sold nothing but water. Now, today that might not seem so strange, but back then it was an absolute unique thing. Okay? What was remarkable about that store, according to the author was, that I was reading at the time, was that North Texas had so much water that its population could have quadrupled without affecting the supply. Okay? Furthermore, its water was relatively pure, at least as pure as that of any other metropolitan area, yet even though any thirsty person could turn on the tap for a virtually free drink, someone had figured out a way to make money off the sale of water. Okay, we take that for granted now. But back then, it wasn't so. This was unique. And the secret may be that, that the store was not really selling water. The store was selling choice. Okay? Track with me now. As I understand it, you can buy distilled water, purified water, spring water, artesian water, normally filtered water, extra filtered water, naturally carbonated water, artificially carbonated water, deionized water, mineral water, demineralized water, desalinated water, flavored water, unflavored water, imported water, and Texans consider any kind of water from out of the state to be imported. Or local water, water from nearby Arkansas is sometimes allowed as local. Oh, and by the way, would you like that already bottled or would you prefer to bottle your own? Needless to say, you don't walk into a store like that and ask, can I have a glass of water? Right? You ask, can I have a glass of that kind of water? And as you point to your selection, but a surfeit of choices has changed the equation. It's no longer enough to know that you are thirsty. You have to know what you are thirsty for. Make sense? An almost identical situation exists within the borders of Christendom today. In an alarming number of places, churches are no longer offering the water of life to thirsty souls, but it is selling choice. About a dozen or so years ago, I did a bit of research on the bottled water industry and the ever-expanding trend in this country to drink bottled water versus water from the tap. And recently, I rechecked and updated those findings last week and found that at the retail level, you won't believe this, but Americans spend more than, get this, $36 billion on bottled water. America. Okay? The problem is, is that they think they're getting better, healthier, more palatable and nourishing product than in, when in fact the sober truth of the matter is they're getting fleeced. Did you know that it takes three times the amount of water to produce the bottle as it does to fill it? 47.8% of the bottled water we buy is tap water, repackaged and refurbished, and mostly by Coke and Pepsi. 
almost half. More than 90% of the United States municipal water supplies meet or exceed regulatory standards put in place by the EPA. The FDA regulations for bottled water, on the other hand, are less strict than those for tap water. Products classified by the FDA as bottled water don't have to meet the same standards of contamination or undergo the same purifying treatments as tap water. So what you're getting in this bottle is less stringently controlled for contaminants than what you get out of the tap in most cases. And did you know that New York City water is one of the cleanest and best tasting water sources in the United States? City water out of the tap in New York. See, this bottled water industry promotes an image of purity. But comprehensive testing reveals a surprising array of chemical contaminants in every bottled water brand analyzed. Unlike tap water, where consumers are provided with the test results most years, every year actually in the cities, the bottled water industry is not required to even disclose the results of the contaminants testing that it conducts. Instead, the industry hides behind the claim that bottled water is held to the same safety standards as tap water. But with the promotional campaign saturated with images of mountain springs, right, and prices up to get this 10,000 times the price of tap water, consumers are clearly led to believe that they're buying a product that has been purified to a level beyond the water that comes out of the garden hose. New Yorkers accepted Americans love to belittle the quality of their tap water, but in blind taste tests, its waters at equal temperatures presented in identical glasses, ordinary people can rarely distinguish between tap, spring water, and luxury waters. Over 40 years ago, bottled water barely existed as a business, okay? Barely existed as a business in the United States. And we're buying the artful story the water companies tell us about water, where it comes from, how healthy it is, what it says about us. Surely among the choices we can make, bottled water isn't just good, it's positively virtuous. Except for this, bottled water is often simply an indulgence, okay? Meanwhile, as of 2020, one out of four people in the world has no dependable, safe drinking water. The global economy has contrived to deny the most fundamental element of life to one billion people while delivering it to us, Americans, as an array of water varieties from around the globe, not one of which we actually need. A chilled plastic bottle of water in the convenience store cooler is the perfect symbol of this moment in American commerce and culture. It acknowledges our demand for instant gratification, our vanity, and token concern, token concern for health. 
Now, unfortunately, over the last 40 years, a similar paradigm has developed in Christendom. Churches have become a lot like the bottled water industry. The genius of the bottled water industry is that it specializes in meeting the consumer's particular needs, more accurately, meeting their wants. Not surprisingly, many churches have responded to this cultural trend by serving up Christianity in whatever form the consumer desires, diluting and distorting the true message of Jesus Christ. Instead of providing Christianity based on what it really is, many have offered a religion based on what the market will bear. And while that may be the genius of the water industry, that kind of approach to ministry deals a death blow to the church of Jesus Christ. Author William Hendricks asks an extremely pertinent question in his book, Exit Interviews. He says, has the church lost sight of its core business? The business of bringing sinful people to maturity in Christ. You and I must personalize that question and ask, have we as Christians lost sight of our core business? Because it's not just the business of the church at large. It's the business of Christians because Christ has put us into the mission field to do that. Are you and I offering the basic water of life to thirsty people spiritually? When people come to us, do they walk away feeling like the customer in the water store, wondering if anyone is in the business of providing just a plain old drink of water? I'm convinced that people in pursuit of spiritual truth don't just want to feel good that they want to really actually become good. And with so many spiritual choices available in the world, we need to be ready, willing, and able as servants and ministers of Jesus Christ to point them in the right direction. And that's no easy task in today's world, mind you. As the Apostle Paul was about to leave this life, his mission complete, his race run, his course finished, he knew that it would get harder for the church and its ministers to preach the truth. He knew that eventually people would no longer thirst for the pure water of truth, but would want water designed to fit their own particular taste. So he wrote to his young protege, Timothy, a struggling pastor in the first century, words which still have weighty importance for us today. He challenged Timothy to pursue his Christianity and his ministry with spiritual excellence and encouraged him to maintain biblical priorities in the midst of a messed up culture. And we must do the same. We have a charge to be salt and light in the world, and that is an intensely spiritual pursuit. Fulfilling that commission of our Lord Jesus Christ demands that we maintain some spiritual priorities, and the principle is timeless, and that's where we're gonna begin here today, that spiritual pursuits demand spiritual priorities. And Timothy had to realize something we all must come to terms with, that he was gonna be pressed with his back against the wall as he took his stand for the truth. I want you to look at the background before we look at the actual text. 2 Timothy chapter 3, the first five verses. Turn there if you have your Bibles with you. 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient parents, ungrateful, unholy 
unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these, Paul writes. Now face it. We as Christians are up against it, aren't we? The church is up against it, aren't we? And like Timothy, we have a tough road to hoe as Christ-following people, and unfortunately, we're tempted to cater to the desires of the masses instead of conforming to the design of the Lord. And Paul says, don't do it, Timothy, don't do it. If it was that important back then when Paul wrote to Timothy, how much more important is it now, the 21st century? He says, don't do it. Set your priorities. Pursue spiritual excellence. Take a stand. Now our text, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. And as I said, these are my life verses as I came into this ministry. They're my life verses as I go out. They're my life verses as I continue in ministry. They're the life verses that I'm going to have until the day that I die. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." As someone once said, the smell of gunpowder is in Paul's words in 2 Timothy 4. He just fired a series of charges that rattle our ribcage, if you listen close enough. First, spiritual priorities must be set. So, Paul says, perk up your ears. Listen up. Listen up. Our faith must be public, not private. So speak up. Our surroundings are hostile, so wake up, and our character must be strong, so stand up. That's what he says in this text, and we're going to unpack that today and next Sunday. So the first thing is, Paul says, listen up, because we are under an authoritative charge. Verse 1, chapter 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. There's so much packed into that one verse. Paul's not fooling around. He's dead serious. And he speaks with authority. He reminds us that one day we're all going to be brought under the great accountability in verse 1. The presence of God. Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Look at that authority that's invoked there. As Paul gives this charge, he calls God Almighty and Jesus Christ as witnesses to this charge. And we know that they are one in the same. Amen? No small thing. In fact, this verse could be translated this way. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, even Christ Jesus. 
That's the authority that's invoked. Secondly, the accountability that's involved. Paul not only calls on the presence of God and his authority, but reminds us that because of Jesus' appearing is imminent, in other words, it could occur at any moment, at which time every lie will be exposed and because his kingdom will be established once and for all, we ought to be motivated to listen up. Don't close your ears. In other words, this is serious business, friends. The message renders verse one like this, and I love the way the color comes into play. Eugene Peterson paraphrases like this, I can't impress this on you too strongly. God is looking over your shoulder. That make you feel a little bit nervous? Christ himself is the judge with the final say on everyone living and dead. He's about to break into the open with his rule. So, so what? So don't just listen up, Paul says, but speak up. We have an aggressive challenge. Not just an authoritative charge, but we have an aggressive challenge. That's in verse 2. Preach the word. Preach the word. In Luke 18, 8, when Jesus throws out this rhetorical question to his disciples, we hear it resound even down through today. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth? And I think Paul wondered the same thing at this point. In urgent and staccato fashion, as if issuing military orders, he issues five clear commands of top priority if we're going to maintain spiritual equilibrium in an unbalanced world. And this is where, this is where the bulk of this is going to start to take place. So first of all, this is how we uh, answer this challenge that we have from Paul to speak up. Number one, Paul says, communicate with credibility. He says, preach the word. Literally, Paul says, become a herald of the truth. Preach it. Make it public. Don't hide the light. Don't cover it up. Proclaim it openly. It's nothing today for every aberrant group under the sun to stand up and proclaim without apology their particular platform. And if you don't believe that, just open a Facebook account and read. Why is it that we Christians tend, tend to remain silent? Why do we think that our faith ought to be a private matter when Jesus specifically told us to go public with the good news? God said that our relationship to Christ is to be personal, but he never said it was to be private. As Rick Warren has said, mind your own business is not a Christian phrase. Nowhere does the Bible say that the Christian faith is private, partial, and compartmentalized. On the contrary, the Christian faith is public, pervasive, and complete. To herald the gospel means to bring God's message to the people. That doesn't mean that we have to set up shop on a street corner and annoy the pants off of people. It means that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit in every way we can, with every creative method possible, and according to the unique way in which God has gifted each one of you and me, we are to proclaim Jesus Christ has come into the world to deliver people from the power of sin and the pain of death, and that through faith in him, people can truly be free. 
Amen? They can receive life. Eternal life. Now, why would that ever be construed as a private thing? I once heard it illustrated like this. Many years ago, an Italian recluse was found dead in his house. He had lived frugally all of his life. But when friends were going through his house to sort out the few possessions that he had accumulated, they discovered 246 expensive violins crammed into his attic. Some even more valuable ones were in a bureau drawer in his bedroom. Virtually all of his money had been spent buying violins. Yet his misdirected devotion to the instruments had robbed the world of their beautiful sounds. Because he selfishly treasured those violins, the world never heard the music that they were meant to play. It is even reported that the first violin the great Stradivarius ever made was not played, mind you, until it was 147 years old. Many Christians treat their faith like that man treated his violins. They hide their light. They squirrel away their great treasure by not sharing their light and their treasure. Many to whom they could have witnessed are left in spiritual darkness and poverty. Some research estimate that as many as 95% of all Christians have never led another person to Jesus Christ. Have you? Now, I understand that it's the Holy Spirit's job to do that. But have you tried? If that's true, 95% of the world's spiritual violins have never been played. Throughout biblical history, God has charged men and women to live and herald his truth publicly, even in the midst of antagonism, which we have a lot of today. Remember Noah. He called the people to turn from their sins, right? Jonah proclaimed the truth to Nineveh, a very hostile nation. John the Baptist called people to repent. All the disciples, the Apostle Paul, and countless numbers throughout history preached the message of God in season and out. Paul says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. They had it no easier than we do. They were no more accepted than we are now. They did it because they were God's ambassadors and we are to do it for the same exact reason. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18 says, all this newness of life is from God who brought us back to himself through what Christ did. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. This is the wonderful message he has given us to tell others. We are Christ's ambassadors and God is using us to speak to you. We urge you as though Christ himself were pleading with you, be reconciled to God. That's the message that we have. However God uses you to proclaim it, and he's gifted you in a certain way to do it, if you're a Christian, that's our charge, to speak up. Proclaiming God's truth is not the exclusive privilege or the responsibility of the pastor. It is every believer's commission in some way, shape, or form. Everyone who was born of Christ is an ambassador for Christ. 
It is our new nature as believers to proclaim the word of truth. But most Christians struggle with that. A book I read some time ago challenged all of us, all of us as we wrestle with this unfashionable nature of preaching the gospel in our current society because it is unfashionable, isn't it? The author writes that most of us struggle with proclaiming the truth boldly, and this is why. God and his word have been relegated to the fringe of what's important and defining in our society, a process identified by the term secularization. A secularized society is one that is determined to make that what God says socially irrelevant, even if it remains personally engaging. You hear what he's saying? It restricts the relevance of God to the private sector. And this has created, according to Richard John Newhouse, a naked public square, unquote. God's word may be alive and well privately, but publicly, socially, and culturally, it's dead. For all intents and purposes, that's what the world thinks. In The Abolition of Man, author C.S. Lewis noted one consequence of this cultural death of God's word. If we remove God and his word from the public square, we leave people without the capacity to make moral judgments about the world, stripped of the divine resource we need to discern between the ultimate true and the ultimate false, everything becomes a matter of private opinion. And isn't that true today? This creates what C.S. Lewis calls men without chests. It produces a less than robust person, which in turn produces a less than robust society which is too weak to make absolute moral judgments and uncompromising moral stands. C.S. Lewis was brilliant and way ahead of his time. In effect, many of us followers of Christ have become just as secular as the world around us. We've been suckered into thinking that what God has to say isn't nearly as relevant as what the world around us is saying. And the, the author of this book goes on to say therapeutic techniques, marketing strategies, and the beat of the entertainment world often have far more influence over how we live and think. Is that true? What we like and don't like is influenced more by the world than by the word. Just like the world around us, we read self-help books, study the latest pop culture craze, watch reality TV, we pay attention to the popular opinions of the day on everything from how to have the most satisfying sex life to what we should spend our money on. We absorb the values and the worldview of our current culture without ever asking, what does the Bible have to say about this? Now, I'm not advocating don't read stuff, don't watch stuff, don't engage in cultural conversations. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is that you go away from those things and you ask yourself the question, what does God's word have to say about this? And he makes this ma major statement that I love. We may believe in sola scriptura in theory, but too often in practice we embrace sola cultura, leaving the Bible far behind. And that's another subtle reason why Paul calls us to herald the truth, even when it seems like we are making no impact on the society around us. It keeps us from being negatively influenced by the world. Okay? Okay? 
Holocaust survivor, Nobel laureate, Elie Wiesel, once told this tale. He said, a just man comes to Sodom, hoping to save the city. He pickets. What else can he do? He goes from street to street, from marketplace to marketplace, shouting, men and women, repent. What you are doing is wrong. It will kill you. It will destroy you. And they laugh. But he goes on shouting until one day a little child stops the man. He says, poor stranger, don't you see that what you're doing is useless? Yes, the man replies. Then why do you go on, the child says. In the beginning, he says, I was convinced that if I would change them. Now I go on shouting because I don't want them to change me. What's happening in the church today? Are we being changed by the culture around us because they're not accepting the word? We need to keep preaching the word so that we don't accept what the world preaches. However, Paul doesn't just charge us to preach. He charges us to preach something. What is it? Preach what? The Word. We're not charged to preach our opinion, our particular bent or political slant. Not humanistic philosophy, not pious platitudes, not religious rhetoric. The Word of God. Preach the Word. Very simple. That's exactly what God told Jonah to do, too. I'm going to give you the message to preach. Preach this. And when I step into the pulpit, my primary aim is not to give you book reviews, political commentaries, current events, or psychological theories. That's not my main concern. I may use those things to illustrate things. But that's not my concern. It is to give you the whole counsel of God. The Word of God. It is when we proclaim the truth of God from the Word of God that Christians have credibility and that's when souls are changed. Nobody's changed by somebody's opinion for eternal life. They're changed by the Word of God and by the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Scriptures must not only be the preacher's but every Christian's standard and stronghold. The late Francis Schaeffer clarifies this in his book, The Christian Manifesto. He says, quote, Christianity is not just a series of truths, but truth. Truth about all of reality, unquote. See, it's too easy in hard times to flow with the tide of opinions offered by the world around us instead of seeking God's will in his word and sharing the principles that should guide our worldview. We can get so caught up in the relativism of this age. As Chuck Swindoll once said, he says, books, friends, and counselors are very helpful at times, but it is the Bible we're to know, to practice, and to herald above all else. Why? Because it, it's a living word. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrows, and can expose the depths of your heart. That's what it says in Hebrews 4. Why? Because the world's opinions have a very short shelf life. But the Word of God, the Bible says, stands forever. Paul's first command then, communicate with credibility. Secondly, consider the urgency. Consider the urgency. He says, be ready in season and out of season. The charge, be ready, 
is military terminology that means to stay at your post. In other words, we're always on duty, can't get off. There's no closed season on proclaiming the word of God. Seize the moment, look for them. It can happen at the office, in the car, with friends. You know all that. It's amazing how many opportunities we miss to share the truth. Not in a self-righteous, Bible-bashing manner, but subtly, patiently, wisely, under the leading of the Holy Spirit. You never know how you can affect somebody else's life by living your life like Jesus. Even the most subtle kindness that you do to a non-believer that's all stressed out, can't figure out the way forward, one little act of kindness to that person in Jesus' name can change their life. Few well-placed and well-timed words of truth have way more impact than a hundred sermons. But the charge is to always be ready, to be mentally and spiritually alert. You should be ready to preach the word whether it's convenient or inconvenient. Whether the opportunity presents itself in a favorable light or an unfavorable light. Whether it would be welcomed by the hearers or actually unwelcomed by them. Opportunities present themselves to us all the time. And they're not always safe opportunities, are they? And we have to be ready to seize them, Paul says. How can we be ready? Number one, saturate yourself with the word. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. It says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So saturate yourself with the word. Know it. Secondly, consecrate yourself to the Lord. That's 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and respect. Saturate yourself with the word. Consecrate yourself to the Lord. Communicate with credibility. Consider the urgency. Thirdly, correct with sincerity. Reprove, Paul says. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out. Reprove means to bring conviction upon. Obviously, it's the distinct ministry of the Holy Spirit to do that, to convict people of sin and to bring them to confession and correction. But the Spirit uses people to do that, right? You and me. And the command is to apply the word of God in such a way that sin is exposed for what it really is. Ephesians 5, 11, don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Don't join in, point out. But be careful how you point it out. Be wise in that. But recognize that it's to be done with great patience and instruction. That's what it says in verse 2. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So, we do that then, not with a quick temper, but with self-restraint. And fourthly, confront sin directly. Reprove, it says, rebuke. You know, we're called upon to rebuke sin, not water it down. The term here actually refers to sharp and severe rebuke. So it's the word Matthew used to describe Jesus rebuking the wind and the waves in Matthew 8.26 when the storm was coming upon them and swamping the boat. And he rebuked the wind and the waves, told them to stop. The same word is used when Jesus 
rebuked an unclean spirit and healed a boy that was possessed by a demon in Luke 8, 42. That was no gentle, well, come out of him, Satan. It was a sharp rebuke. Sometimes you need to do that. There are times when we need to speak up and speak out against sin. May be painful, may not be well received, but to remain silent and not warn people of the personal as well as eternal consequences of that continued sin is to cause them greater harm. There's no love in that. Not simply to confront sin directly, but to keep in balance, we also must remember, fifthly, that we are to cultivate sensitivity. We are to comfort, exhort, and encourage people with the Word of God. It says here, Reprove, rebuke, exhort. The word exhort literally means to come alongside of somebody to encourage them, to help them get it right, to cheer them on, to cheer them up. Exhortation is a powerful gift in the church today and it's much needed. There's a delicate balance of severity and sensitivity that's going on here that is to be involved when we proclaim the truth to people. We are compelled to confront the sin, but also to comfort the people. Amen? Every time you and I teach truth, every time we share the Word of God with people, there will be this dual effect. The Word of God, when it is proclaimed effectively, will either afflict the comfortable or it will comfort the afflicted. And sometimes both at the same time. So Paul gives us this aggressive challenge. Speak up. If we're going to pursue spiritual excellence in the church or in our individual lives, we must maintain these priorities. Communicate with credibility. Preach the word. Consider the urgency. Be prepared. Correct with sincerity. Reprove. Confront sin directly. Rebuke. And cultivate sensitivity comfort and exhort and we will do it all with great patience and instructions because if we're going to draw people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ we can't simply condemn and denounce them or their lifestyles can we rarely does that produce conversion or spiritual growth but by exhibiting the spiritual fruit of patience, coupled with a clear presentation of the teaching of God's word, people will be more apt to give the gospel a hearing yeah, they need to hear about sin and its wages, that it's death, but they need to hear about hell too and eternal separation from God as a result of that continued sin. But they also need to hear about grace and they need to hear about love and that through Christ that sin can be and is forgiven, that guilt can be removed and that broken spirits and damaged emotions can be healed and that our relationship with God can be restored. But they're never going to hear it if we, the church, don't listen up, accept the charge we've been given to speak up and declare it. And why is that so urgent to Paul? Why should it be so urgent to us? Because as verse 3 says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. The time will come. Paul warned. The time is now. The time is now. 
Literally, this verse says, for there will be a time when they will not bear with the healthy teaching. The message says it like this. You're going to find that there will be times when people will have no stomach for solid teaching, but will fill up on spiritual junk food, catchy opinions that tickle their fancy. They'll turn their backs on the truth and chase after mirages. And that's what's happening. I could play you video clip after video clip after video clip on YouTube that's for everyone to watch and see that flat out teach heresy. And the church is buying this stuff hook, line, and sinker. Be careful what you let your heart grab onto. Compare it to the word. John chapter 7 in verse 37, Jesus said these words. Come on now, on the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, that's you and me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Behold the bottled water syndrome. Don't listen to that junk that they're feeding you that doesn't relate to the truth on your device. You have living water if you know Christ that bubbles up from within you and you can get that right from the word of God and it comes alive with the Holy Spirit who indwells you. Is that right? That's where we're going to pick it up next time. Let me finish out with this. In the Minneapolis Star Tribune, Judy Zimmerold writes this. She says, three-year-old Katie, she was taken to her pediatrician during a recent bout with the flu. As the doctor examined her ears, now she's three years old, mind you, examines her ears and he says, will I find Big Bird in here? Apprehensively, Katie replied, no. And before examining her throat, he asked, will I find the cookie monster in there? Again, three-year-old Katie said no. Finally, listening to her heart, he asked, now this is, she wrote this years ago, will I find Barney in here? Listening to her heart. With innocent conviction, she looked him directly in the eye, three-year-old Katie, and said, no, Jesus is in my heart, Barney's on my underwear. Paul is warning us as Christ followers, don't play into the stupid talk and the useless myths of a culture that ignores what is true. Even a child can see through that. I challenge you all today to listen up and to speak up and take advantage of the opportunities to proclaim the truth every chance you get this week and forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. Continue it. Continue to let it ruminate and saturate in our hearts. And I pray, Lord God, that it would change us. Move us to be more like what Paul is calling Timothy to be. Heralds of truth in a world gone sour. Our Father, I pray that until next week, we would chew on these things and let them come to bear. May you be glorified in all of it. In Jesus' precious name, I pray. Amen.